I'm glad that you are here uh, today, that you've uh, been able to join us, whether you're with us in person. How many of you are here in person? Just curious. Seven, good. Um, or maybe you're joining us at church online. Uh, thank you for being with us today. This morning, I'm going to wrap up this short series uh, that we've been in for the month of January. It isn't just about um, a new year. It's, it, this is about you, and this is about me, and this is about your life and my life and, and what we want to accomplish, and not just now in the beginning of the new year, New Year's resolution kind of thing, but uh, over the course of time. So uh, just quick review. In part one, back in the first Sunday in January, we talked about what future you uh, would say to you, what future you would tell you to do right now, even if it's difficult, even if it doesn't seem possible, even if it doesn't quite make sense, because ultimately, this is a series really about the purpose of your life, about the meaning of your life, about accomplishing significant things. In part two, we address the question, why haven't I accomplished more? Why haven't I accomplished what I had hoped to accomplish at this point in my life? Uh, we talked about our tendency to confuse activity for productivity and how we fall into the trap of believing that somehow busyness is honorable. And we looked at the words of the Apostle Paul uh, where he wrote, make uh, the most of every opportunity. And we talked about what that means in the context of how we manage our time. Then in part three, just last week, we talked about the, this elusive idea of work-life balance. And I suggested that perhaps work-life balance is a myth. Like perhaps even if we were to achieve it, perhaps it's not actually worth the pursuit of our lives anyway. Um, perhaps work-life balance is a healthy thing to possess, but not that lofty a thing to pursue. So I suggested that if we, we want to make an impact on the world around us and the lives of the people around us or maybe in, in the world at large, then we should lean, rather than leaning into balance, we should lean into passion. So we asked the question, why not be more passionate about life? And we talked about the idea of managing our energy so that we can bring our best energy, bring our passion to the things that matter most. And I think the takeaway, uh, at least the intended takeaway, the challenge for last week, for those of us who consider ourselves followers of Jesus, was to simply go into our week and give our best energy to being the hands and feet of Jesus. <clears throat> so today, we're going to wrap up this series with a question. I think it's the big, it's the big question. It's a question you've probably asked, um, whether you're a Christian, whether you're not a Christian, it's just a people question. And it's this, it's what was I put on the earth to accomplish. And uh, I, I quoted Ben this morning at the nine o'clock, and I uh, didn't ask his permission, um, so I owe him uh, some royalties. But if you haven't listened yet to Ben's uh, new podcast or watched any of his YouTube videos, you really ought to, because he's been talking about this very thing quite extensively, and, and I think you find it engaging. But I love the verbiage he uses, so I, I stole this from his lexicon. But we're gonna, so we're going to say it this way today. What am I alive to do? What am I alive to do? I'm guessing you probably started um, asking this question maybe in high school, or at least I hope you did. Uh, you know, as you got closer to graduating and you realized you might want to think uh, about what you'd like to do beyond the summer of your graduation, right? Like what you maybe would like to do for a living or whether, in, a, in that case, whether or not you should go to college and if so, where you should go and if, once you decide that, like maybe what you should major in or whatever. So there's, so there's that and then there's this post-college doubt. 
right? I don't know if you've ever experienced that, where you're a couple years into your career and after positioning yourself for this career, like, like partway through high school, you decided this is the path I'm going to take. And, and all the way through college, this is the thing I'm going to pursue. And now you've landed in the job you've been dreaming of and positioning yourself for. And now you're wondering, did I pick the right one? You know, I've talked to... Um, teachers who decided to be teachers when they were still in high school. And they went to college with the idea that they were going to be a teacher and they're going to make an impact in the lives of their students. And then they get into teaching and they realize this isn't exactly uh, what I had in mind. There are things to it that nobody told me about. There's a lot of meetings and administrative stuff and paperwork and preparation and stuff and preparation and then some other stuff and then preparation. And then some stuff doesn't seem to have anything to do with teaching students. So like, what am I doing here? I've talked with nurses and doctors and other medical professionals who decided you know, to go into the medical field, and they made that decision when they were in high school. And so they went to college with the idea that they were going to be a nurse, or they're going to be a doctor, or they're going to be a therapist, or whatever. Why? Because they want to help people, because they want to serve people, because they want to contribute to alleviating human suffering, because they wanted to make a difference in their community. And they get onto their career path. And, and I have told the story of one of the providers on one of our Guatemala missions saying, this is so refreshing. There's no, there's no paperwork. Like at home, I feel like an overqualified data entry technician. And I've heard our nurses say on that mission trip, like this is what I got into nursing to do. So I think most of us have experienced this kind of thing, and it doesn't always have to do with what you're doing for work, but at some level, at some point, all of us ask, what did God put me on this earth to accomplish? What am I alive to do? And as simple as that question is to ask, a lot of us find it almost impossible to answer. And I know, I know people who've gone for uh, decades in, in their adult life trying to answer that question, and they haven't yet landed on a good answer. And every year that goes by, you're like, well, I, I, still, don't, I still don't know uh, what was accomplished in that year, because like, I don't know what I'm here to do. Like, what did I do with my life last year? What am I even alive to do? Now, <clears throat> if you're a Christian, perhaps you've asked that question with greater urgency because uh, you've, you've asked that question with greater urgency because you have this idea that, and you almost feel guilty about it, but that, well, I'm sure, I'm sure God created me to do something and I'm missing it. I mean, why am I missing it? I mean, what if I blow it? What if I totally miss the thing that God put me on this earth to do? And maybe some of you are frustrated because you're like, well, I know this guy was put on this planet to do that and she was put on the planet to do this, but I have no idea what I was put on this planet to do. And you're frustrated because you haven't found the answer to that. Or maybe you landed on an answer, but you're not quite sure whether it's the right one. I mean, if you, maybe you actually accomplished some, some things in your life, but you look back in your life and you realize, but I didn't accomplish the right things. I didn't accomplish the things that matter the most. And all of us are well aware of the fact that sometimes, you know, maybe you climb the ladder of success uh, only to realize at the end of your days that it's leaning against the wrong wall. And in Christian circles, if you're not a Christian, just listen in because this is a thing for us. Um, as a Christian, we ask the question, does God have something specific for me to do? Like, is there a specific job? Is there a specific calling, you know? Or, or maybe it's like if you're dating, is this the woman? Is this the guy? I mean, is there somebody out there just for me? Is there a specific career? And is, if so, is it in a specific place? Does God care uh, where I work or where I live? And what about this whole calling thing that the church tends to celebrate? What about all of that? <clears throat> 
great minds over the centuries uh, have tried to figure this stuff out. And for example, like we could spend some time in the Westminster Confession of Faith, which was a document written about 400 years ago by Christians who were trying to figure out what is it that we were put on earth to do. And they answered it this way. They asked the question, what is the chief end of man? That's how they phrased it. In other words, when it's all said and done, what is the purpose of our existence? Like, why are we here and what are we to do? And the answer that the people who put the Westminster Confession of Faith together, uh, what the answer they gave was this. The chief end of man or humanity is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. It's a pretty good answer. But if I left it there, you wouldn't be satisfied with that because you're like, well, I know that. I mean, no, duh. I mean, but what am I supposed to do? Like at the broadest level, sure, this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, which is awesome. But what am I supposed to do? Like in the meantime, like now, like what am I supposed to do? We're usually looking for something a little bit more specific. For me, when I was first starting out in church ministry, uh, like those first, uh, those last few months of seminary, I started thinking about what am I going to do with this? Like where am I going to end up? Where am I going to go? What's my church ministry going to look like? What do I do now? I should be thinking about that now. And like for me, I began pursuing a life of pastoral ministry when I was like 15 because it was clear to me at that point in my high school years what it was I was to do. And what wasn't always clear was where I would do it. Um, I lived at home with my parents through college, and we were living in the Dallas area in Texas. And I was pretty sure God wasn't, as a, as a Canadian immigrant from rural Nova Scotia, I was pretty sure that God wasn't going to call me to a church in Texas. He wouldn't do that to me because he loves me too much, and he just wasn't going to call me to stay there. It couldn't possibly be his will for me. Uh, but before my last year of seminary, I did a seven-week uh, internship with a church planting missionary in Alaska. And I thought, well, this could be cool. And then, in fact, a little less than a year after my time there, I got a call from the church that I had served in just outside of Anchorage, and they were looking for a new pastor because their church planter was moving on to plant a new church. And they wondered if I might be interested in leading that church. I started, uh, I graduated high school a little early and started college a little early. So here I am, 20 years old. I'm engaged to a girl from Texas. I'm pretty sure her parents wouldn't have been too thrilled about me taking their daughter to Alaska, of all places. But we talked about it, we considered it, and decided it wasn't the right fit or the right time for us. So a few weeks later, I had an opportunity to interview at a church in New Brunswick, Canada. It was actually a church that my dad pastored way back in the 70s, and I thought this could work. Um, So I I made the trip from Dallas to Moncton, New Brunswick, to preach a couple times and interview with the search committee. And again, I wasn't I wasn't quite 21. I was engaged. I had zero uh, pastoral experience, and they were actually considering me, which is kind of crazy, but we ended up, that ended up not being a good fit. I ended up not, not taking that. So when my parents moved, a couple months later, my parents moved to Ellsworth, and I decided to tang along since I didn't have any leads on where I would start my full-time ministry, and this could get me closer to moving back to Canada, which I was sure where God would be leading me. Well, after being here for just a couple months, a position became open in the church where my dad was the new pastor. And the board asked if I'd be interested in filling that position for a while. Now, they couldn't pay me, although they had paid the previous guy. But they, but they, for some reason, wanted me to fill that slot, but they couldn't pay me. But they would be generous enough to pass on any donations that came in through the offering that were designated for me. So kind of like a missionary. 
So, of course, that all made perfect sense to me. Uh, so I said yes to that. And, I mean, my fiancé would understand. She'd be completely on board with that. And for sure, her dad would be excited because I'm not going to Alaska and I'm not going to Canada. I'm just going to Maine. I mean, it's only 2,000 miles away instead of 4,000. And, and no, they're not technically paying me, but maybe someday. <laughs> so that's what we chose to do. Here's the thing. I love this quote by St. Augustine. St. Augustine was a theologian, a philosopher, one of the early church fathers, and uh, the FCF kids learned about St. Augustine just a few weeks ago, Augustine of Hippo, and a few weeks, you could ask them, they probably would tell you all about him. But nearly 1,700 years ago, he had a very similar thought to the people who had put together the Westminster Confession of Faith, and he wrote it this way. He said, love, and in context, it was love God and do what you want. So let's put these two together. So the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever and love God and do what you want. So what do you do with that? For starters, I would suggest you could rule some things out. There are probably some things that you're not particularly good at. Uh, Years ago, I remember hearing John Maxwell say, uh, he was teaching about strengths and weaknesses. And uh, basically, he said that the idea of working on your weaknesses is kind of a waste of time. Like if on a scale of 1 to 10, a particular area of your life is a weakness, and it's like a 3, and you work on it, and you work on it, and you work on it, and if you're really successful, you can probably bring that up a couple points, right? So now you're like a 5 in that area. But 5 is not exceptional. 5 is mediocre. So instead, he says, focus on your strengths, develop your strengths, lean into your strengths, and in the meantime... When it comes to what should I be doing, when you look at your weak areas, that's an indicator of some things that you could rule out. Like you might be thinking right now, like the last thing I would ever want to do is public speaking. Like I want, I'd like to want to do it, but I wouldn't want to do it. And for me, it's just something that I'm drawn to. I'm not saying I'm good at it, but it's something, if there's a microphone that's on, I'm drawn to it and I'm comfortable doing it. And I maybe I think I'm learning to be a somewhat effective communicator. Here's the thing, we're like for all of us, we're not good at some stuff. And by process of elimination, you can pretty easily identify what you're not good at, right? And it becomes pretty obvious. Well, that's not my sweet spot. I tried it, not at all. That is not my thing. Don't enjoy it, not good at it, not my sweet spot. So what is my sweet spot? I mean, did God even give me a sweet spot? Like when, it, when, it, when he got around to me, did I get a sweet spot? I know that person got one and she got one and he got one. But did I, did I, when it comes to what I should be doing with my life, what's my sweet spot? Now, in baseball, the term sweet spot actually refers to a bat. And I know this is a softball bat, but it's, it's got a sweet spot too. The sweet spot is a part of the bat where... If a hitter makes contact with the ball, the ball goes further, the ball goes faster, and the hitter feels almost nothing. So if you listen to Major League Baseball players talk about the big home run, you know that post-game interview while they're on the field, and they're like, yeah, it, was, you know, I, I just, just, it just connected, it just like flew out of here. But if you hit outside of the sweet spot on the bat, there's a lot of vibration that happens through the batter, throughout the bat, into the batter's hands, into the batter's arms, and the ball might still make it out of the infield. It could even make it out of the park, but it is going to hurt. And sometimes you'll see them, even with batting gloves on, shaking off the vibration as they leave the batter's box. 
So the sweet spot on a bat is right about in this area right here. It's about anywhere from a couple inches down on the bat to about seven inches down on the bat. And if you hit it right in the sweet spot, at the right angle, at the right velocity, at the right time, you've got a shot at a home run. It's the sweet spot. There are a lot of physics involved in hitting a baseball, especially at the major league level, because there are the vibrational bending modes. The first bending mode usually occurs at a frequency around 170 hertz, is at the node located about six inches from the end of the bat, whereas the second bending mode occurs around 600 hertz, and it's at the, mo at the node about two to three inches uh, from the end of the bat. So you've got the nodes and the modes, and then there are two vibration waves that work either in concert or against each other. They move or oscillate throughout the bat, and it's in this zone between the two nodes where the vibration is the least and where great things happen. So if you're a major league baseball player, what you're trying to do, and you have very little time to do this, is you're trying to catch the rotation of the ball with your eye, right? You're trying to catch the location and rotation of the ball, make a decision based on that whether or not I'm going to swing, start the swinging motion, and literally in a split second, you're trying to connect on the sweet spot of the bat. And when you do that, your opportunity for success, your opportunity to make an impact on the game is huge. Now, this whole issue of life and work and service to others and what you're supposed to do, and, and listen, there's, there's work, right? And then like your job, that your job that you're paid to do, and then there's works, what the New Testament calls works. Like what is your response to the way of Jesus? And this has been an issue for centuries, and it was an issue in the early church. And so the Bible addresses it, and it's an issue that a lot of people ask even today. And so the Apostle Paul was well aware of the, the, the conversations and debates and issues they were having in all these little these churches around the area and these churches he was familiar with. And so he would get rumblings of things they were struggling with, and then he'd write a letter and address it. So he wrote a letter to the church in Ephesus. We looked at this letter a few weeks ago, actually. And like a lot of his letters, several other churches also received the letter so that they could get in on this issue. So he addresses this thing and he says, look, I want to clarify how this works. And then at the very end of the passage, he gives us a glimpse into what God's intention is for our lives. So if you have your Bibles, you have your Bible app, we're going to read from Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to start with verse 6. Ephesians 2 verse 6. And God raised us up with Christ. So he's talking, we know already he's talking to Christians. He's talking about the idea of being dead to sin but alive in Christ. That, and that really means that, that the, the reason that life is, is so difficult sometimes, and listen, if your life isn't that difficult right now, just like look around you and be aware that life is hard. Like life is difficult. So when you're dead in your sins and God raises you up with Christ, this is what Paul's talking about. And he says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And I know that sounds kind of super spiritual or theological, like maybe words you'd sing in a song. But basically, what he's saying is that we believe we'll go to heaven when we die and we'll be united with Christ. But before that happens, this is also true in that it happens spiritually in this life, that the things that used to control me don't need to control me anymore. The things that used to be true of me in my life don't need to be true of my life anymore. In fact, the whole idea really of this series, what would future you do, what we're really talking about is the power of Christ that's available to all of us who believe. That's what makes extraordinary life change possible. And you can, you can change some things on your own, don't get me wrong, but some of the changes that need to happen, some of the changes that have happened in your life are only possible because of God's grace and God's mercy and God's power in your life, right? Paul continues. This is one long sentence. Verse 7. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. 
Let me just stop for a second. You ever wonder how God feels about you? Do you ever think, I wonder, number one, if God ever thinks about me? And number two, if he does think about me, how does he feel about me? Is he angry with me? Is he judging me? Is he disappointed with me? And Jesus answered that. He settled it. That the question of how does God feel about me, look, we don't have to come crawling to God. We don't have to come with our shame to God. Jesus, through his actions on the cross, says God loves you. God loves you, period. Verse 7, In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. This is not some general kind of love. It's not a passing feeling. This is personal. Then verse 8, a couple of verses we might be familiar with. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. Saved by undeserved love, by undeserved favor. That's what grace is. Saved by grace through faith. Your part is not to be good. Your part is to believe, to believe that Jesus, when he came to this earth, he came for you. He came to bring the forgiveness that, to, to, that, that we needed. And so for us to believe that the forgiveness Jesus offers has been extended to us. It's by grace that you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God. Verse 9, not by works so that no one can boast. So it's not from yourself. It's, not, it's nothing you did. It's a gift of God, not by your works, not by your good deeds, not by your lack of bad deeds. And Christians have a reputation for being some of the most self-righteous people. Have you noticed? Like, we, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't be the most self-righteous people around because we have nothing other than the righteousness of Christ to justify us. We should be the most grateful people around because it was God when He poured His mercy and extended His grace to me that saved me. So you might ask, well, but Todd, what, good works must play some role. I mean... It doesn't really, if it doesn't make any difference what I do, like, then why would I bother trying to be a good person at all? Why would I even bother to follow the way of Jesus? Here's one way to think of it, okay? Good works are not the reason for your salvation, but they should be your response to it. <clears throat> good works are not the reason for your salvation. It's not, well, I'm a good person, therefore, you know, I'm in relationship with God, therefore, God looks favorably upon me, therefore, I'm going to heaven. But good works should be your response to your salvation. In other words, in light of the fact that God loves me, in light of the fact that Jesus forgives me, in light of the fact that God's mercy has been extended to me, I want to live my life differently. I want to live my life according to the way of Jesus. So our good works don't save us, but our lives become a response to the work of Christ in our lives. And then this is what Paul says in verse 10. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So good works aren't the reason for your salvation, that they should be your response to it. So think about this. We are God's handiwork. The Greek word is poema, poema, and it means poem. You're an artistic masterpiece. And now that we're saved, right, there are some things for us to do. There are some things for us to accomplish. There are some things that only you can do. And that's the good news. But it doesn't really get us any further towards answering our questions. You're like, great, but what, you know, but if, if we're, there's some works we're to do, what are those works? Like, that's what I've been asking the whole time. That's, that's what I need to know. That's the whole point of my question. The Bible uh, makes it clear that there's something for me to do, but I don't know what it is, so let's get there. I think generally the Westminster Confession of Faith, it was right that we are to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. 
I think Augustine was right. We're to love God and do what we want. But there's some teachings that we find in the Bible when you partner with the mission of the church, when you partner with the mission that Jesus called us to, when you work to heal relationships, when you forgive people, when you give thanks in every circumstance, then we are, when we're leaning into those kinds of things and we're doing the will of God. But if you're like, that's great, this is all generic stuff, I know all that, I just want to find my sweet spot, right? I want to find the part of me uh, that is uniquely created for, that, for what purpose? If God's prepared something for me, what is it? Be nice to know. Three questions I want to share with you as we wrap this up today. Three questions I think can help us answer this big question. What is my sweet spot? What am I alive to do? What is my unique contribution to this world? First question, what do I love to do? So just ask yourself that question. Uh, Be realistic. Um, You aren't going to settle this in the five minutes that are left in this message, I don't think, but it could help this week. It could help in the weeks ahead as you kind of work and process uh, to wrestle these things down. What do I love to do? Like there are some things that are just not work for you, right? That maybe other people think that's difficult or it takes some effort. To you, it's effortless. Uh, like for me, for the most part, uh, there are certain elements of what I do day to day that are work, but there are parts of my job, my vocation as a pastor that don't feel like work to me usually. I mean, I have, I have days like that every, every week where are moments and days for sure where I feel like I can't believe I get to do this. And some of you uh, may not have a job like that, but you have other activities like that. You're like, oh, if I do this, I lose track of time. If I do this, I'm so energized. If I do this, I can do it for a long time and never get tired. And on the days when you get to do those things, you know that's coming. You can't wait to get out of bed that day, right? But the reality is, according to statistics, 70% of us, 70% of us, that does not describe our day job. When you look around, you're like, oh, that'll never be my job. I just can't imagine finding anything I would love to do. Because remember, we're talking about your sweet spot. Oh, and you might never get paid for that. Because you might be a relational person. And you just love relationships. And you have this uncanny way of bringing out the best in people through relationships. You just love helping people and serving people behind the scenes. Maybe you're good with your hands and you're creative and you like troubleshooting and coming up with creative solutions. Whatever the thing is that you love to do, it's an indicator of your sweet spot, but it's not the only indicator. It's not the only clue. And here's why. Um, Because just because I love it doesn't mean I'm good at it. So I'm going to need someone in my life to tell me the truth. And we'll get to that. Second question. Where does my engagement make the greatest impact? So again, I don't just mean your job, right? Because it might be crystal clear to you that your greatest impact for sure is not in your workplace. Maybe it's in the time you invest mentoring someone, bringing someone along in their faith, building into those relationships. Maybe it's the time you spend serving in ministry around the church or serving in a nonprofit in town. Maybe, or maybe it is in your workplace, but it isn't really related to your job description. That your greatest impact in the workplace isn't the thing you get paid to do, but it's in the context of the relationships that you've established with your coworkers and your boss and with your employees and with your customers and with your students and with your patients and your clients because you've truly invested in their lives, even at work. So what do I love to do? Where does my engagement make the greatest impact? Then the last question is, what do godly people in my life see in me? What do godly people see in me? Because sometimes we're the worst people to be assessing ourselves, right? And here's something to guard against. Because the reality is we all have friends who just tell us what we want to hear. And if 
all your friends only tell you what you want to hear, you need to add some new friends. I'm not saying dump those friends. I'm just saying add some new friends. Because if all your friends are like, well, hey, whatever makes you happy, whatever you think, that's great for you. Don't talk to those friends about this sort of thing because they're going to be of like no help to you at all. Uh, You need some mature, godly, truth-telling people in your life who care about you and who have your back and who can provide some wise counsel in your life. I've worked really hard over the last 20 years to cultivate this circle of people around me, people who will speak truth to me. And, uh, and it's interesting because sometimes people come and go from that circle and it's fine, it's for a season. But when you've got people who will tell you the truth and who can say it in love and they're not doing it to tear you down and make you feel bad about yourself or to remind you that you're a failure, they're doing it to build you up. You've got, you got incredible people. And if there are people who are following the same mission to follow Jesus and to glorify God, you are so blessed with that. But the reality is, for some of you, you don't actually have that kind of circle. So what you're going to have to do before you can even answer this third question is you need to cultivate those relationships. Because the very moment you need this kind of advice is not the time to start to develop this circle. So here's what I would say to you. Get in a small group. Get into a group. Come to circles this week. Start to find some people that you can connect with. Do that for a few weeks. And then doing that for a few weeks, try to figure out who in that group you can invite out for coffee and explore the possibility of a deeper connection. Do you see how this could take months to work at and a level of intentionality? This possibility of a deeper deeper connection, not because you necessarily need that relationship right now, but so that you have those people in your life when you do need it. And I'm not suggesting that you show up in circles this week and as soon as there's a gap in the conversation, you're like, so what do you guys see in me? Okay, because I'm not asking you to be weird. But get into a group, get connected, get into an environment, whatever that is, where you can start to cultivate that circle of people who will tell you the truth. Not the people who are just like, well, whatever makes you happy, they have a place in your life. But I'm talking about people who will tell you the truth. So how do these three things come together? When you ask these three questions, what do I love to do? Where does my engagement have the greatest impact? And then what do godly people see in me? When you ask these questions, and and I don't mean like one time ask the question, but take weeks or months to really explore this with intentionality. And when you start to get answers that have some commonality, like there's some similarities, right, between your answers for all three questions, you might be zeroing in on your sweet spot. And as you start to get closer and closer to your sweet spot, you'll begin to discover what you were uniquely created to do. You'll discover that when you build your life and connect with others around your sweet spot, there's a lot less interference, there's a lot less pushback, and things become clearer. And you'll start to accomplish things that really matter. It's probably, by the way, going to be something you never get paid a dime for. But you'll start to accomplish things and experience things and go, I'm so glad that I was a part of that. I'm glad that I got to play a part there. And people around you will say, I'm so glad I have him in my life. I'm so glad she's in my life. And you'll begin to discover your sweet spot. And you might even do what future you would tell you to do. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this journey over these last few weeks and our time together to to talk about uh, how, how to accomplish what really matters um, I know there are probably some people here this morning that are just, uh, might be at a starting point. Maybe for some people, they're coming to a place where they're beginning to understand that 
the relationship between works and salvation, and they realize that they don't have to do anything to earn your favor. So if there's anyone here who today wants to begin a relationship with you and to follow you, I pray that they would uh, do that today. This would be their day. Father, for others of us, help us to lean into this process to discover what we are uniquely gifted to do. Things that we love doing, maybe leaning into things that other people see in us, maybe areas where we have the greatest impact. And Lord, we just pray that you guide us, direct us, help us cultivate this circle of godly counsel. But ultimately, Lord, in all that we do, may we do it with our whole hearts as in service to you and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name.